invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 19 with me this morning. Christ's second coming, the tale of two suppers. Babylon has fallen. Antichrist has claimed his dominance. The two witnesses proclaimed the gospel and were killed by the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. The population of the earth has been desolated. The mark of the beast has been distributed, and there is now a definitive separation between those who are determined to follow the Lord and those who have taken the mark of the beast and have confirmed themselves in their choice. Those who have determined to follow the Lord are fleeing for their lives, particularly those of the nation of Israel. At the end of all of this, when the people of God are fleeing and hiding, the armies of the earth are gathered together to Megiddo, a city that's made, that's, that's been built right on the edge of the valley of Jezreel, a time that the Bible calls Har-Megeddon, or the Mount of Megiddo. This is made possible by the drying of the Euphrates River that took place in, during the 6th of the vile judgments as it was poured out. The Euphrates River dries up, making way for the kings of the east to come to the supper of the great God, to come to the valley of Jezreel and the valley of Jehoshaphat, where prophecy tells us there will be a great gathering unto destruction. Now, this chapter is, is sort of going to take two weeks. This week we're going to walk through all of the exposition of chapter 19 verse by verse as we always do uh, when we're going expositionally. And then next week I'm going to take you to a number of Old Testament passages of Scripture that reveal this event, that reflect this event. And we're going to try to put together uh, some of the, the concepts as it relates to Revelation 19 with the elements of prophecy. We'll do the same thing in Revelation 20 uh, in, in the beginning of the new year as we talk through... Uh, the Millennial Kingdom. And the amount of prophecy concerning the Millennial Kingdom in the Old Testament is uh, um, uh, immense. We won't be able to get through it all, but we'll get through uh, enough for you to see some of the links and some of the uh, um, connections between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament reality. So next week we'll consider uh, the same thing in regard to the, the, coming, the second coming of the Lord, and we'll look at some of the Old Testament testimony concerning it. Now, I called this chapter The Tale of Two Suppers because uh, there are two very distinct tones to this chapter, so much so that I almost considered breaking it up into two messages in and of itself because the tone of the chapter uh, takes two such very distinct flavors. The first part of the, the chapter is rejoicing. It is the people of God rejoicing uh, at the concept of the second coming, at, at the, the reality of what it is going to represent for them. It's going to represent vindication. It's going to represent the vengeance of the Lord that they had foregone. It's going to represent victory. It's going to represent uh, all of the things that God has promised us. It's going to represent our hope. The second half of the chapter, however, is of terror. For those who have rejected Christ, terror to those who have opposed him. So we're going to see these two distinct tones, and, and, and it's going to be very obvious when the transition takes place. We'll see it in the text. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. So after these things, John tells us after the vision of Babylon, which John saw, the vision of Babylon the Great falling, what was also called the Great Whore, Mystery Babylon, all of those different names as we talk through it together. Naturally, as we've said any number of times, uh, there are some very valid questions regarding the timing of all of these events as John speaks of them. Is it only the timing of what John is seeing? Is, is, is it only the timing of his visions when he says after these things? Or is it the timing of events as we would actually believe them to be in a timetable? There's a lot of discussion about that. There's a lot of debate about that. I don't know that anyone is going to settle it until the day that our understanding becomes sight, right? Until the generation wherein these things happen. But it does seem 
that there is a general timetable, and that's the way that we've approached it, as we seek to approach the Bible literally, grammatically, contextually, historically, that there is a general timetable to these things uh, with some thematic elements thrown in here and there, some foreshadowing and such, but a general timetable. And that would concur with what we see, say, in Daniel's 70th week, in Daniel chapter 9 and all of the prophecies of the 70th week as it relates to a physical, actual timetable. So John's vision of these things begins after these things. He has seen Babylon the great fall. He has seen the great whore and she has been judged for her fornication. And after these things, the Bible says, John sees and hears praise to God. He hears the voice of much people in heaven, a very large gathering. And they are saying, Alleluia. Now, for those of you that have been around for a while, anytime we sing anything that has Alleluia or Hallelujah in it, I, I have characteristically asked you what that means. So most of you probably know it means praise ye the Lord. It is a call. Praise ye the Lord. Now here it is Alleluia, which is the Greek rendition of the Hebrew word Hallelujah, meaning praise ye the Lord. So they call one another to praise the Lord. Because salvation and glory and honor and power belong unto the Lord our God. And we do see why. They say why within their song of praise. Because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the great whore, which is Babylon. And in doing so, notice, he has avenged the blood of the martyrs. Avenged the blood of his servants. And this is the praise. Praise the Lord. Babylon has been judged. God has avenged the blood of of the martyrs. Now this praise continues as we continue in the text, verses 3 and 4. And again they said, Alleluia, praise ye the Lord. Come together, praise the Lord together. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Again, the group calls one another to praise the Lord. And the Bible says, her, they, 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 as they praise, they say, her smoke has risen up or rises up forever and ever. Speaking of the smoke of Babylon in, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, uh, we considered that idea of the smoke of Babylon. Both chapters speak of Babylon, the city burning. And so that's the idea there as her smoke ascends forever, as the Bible describes it. The testimony, Babylon being the destruction of the rebellion against God, man's failure to rebel against God in any noticeable way. Perhaps I did not emphasize this as much as I should have in the last several sermons as we considered Babylon. The reason why we trace Babylon all the way back to the Tower of Babel and we studied the legacy of Babylon as it relates to all of the pagan religions of every generation uh, throughout this earth is because this has been the system that man has from the very beginning, from the time of Babel itself. Perhaps we could even go all the way back further, though we just don't know a lot about that time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. But throughout all of that time, this has been the system through which man has sought to overthrow God, to claim the rights of God, to claim our own or their own, man's own divinity. So the fall of Babylon is not just the fall of a system. It's not just the fall of an economic system. It's not just the fall of a religious system. It is a testimony to the failure of man to rebel against God. God is going to put man down, put him back in his place. He will not allow him to rebel forever. Man has been given that leash whereby we've been allowed to rebel. We've been allowed to have this system that shakes its fist at God. But one day that will end. And that's what the fall of Babylon represents. And that is why we see all of this worship. Because Jesus is now claiming the dominance that is rightfully his. He is claiming the authority that is rightfully his. He is claiming the judgment that, that is rightfully his. He is claiming his throne. And that's what this chapter is about. At this cry, the 24 elders, who we have seen several times throughout the book, but we have actually not seen since Revelation 14 at this point, they fall down and they worship the Lord on the throne. They cry with the others, Amen, Alleluia. We've already defined Alleluia, praise ye the Lord. Amen, Amen in the Greek, literally meaning truly, or let it be so. Verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, 
all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Coming from the throne is more praise. Now the pronouns here indicate that it's not God himself saying this. Praise our God, all ye servants. Praise ye the Lord. Perhaps as John is watching, this praise came from the martyrs on the sea of glass who are right in front of the throne, and that's why he perceived it as coming from the throne. Perhaps the sound is coming from the four beasts that are surrounding the throne, and that's why the sound is coming from the throne, and that's the distinction. We don't really know. But the voice from the throne declares this, Praise our God, all ye his saints, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And that's an important concept. We're going to see that concept come up in judgment as well, both small and great. See, it doesn't matter your earthly status. It doesn't matter wealthy or poor, small or great, male or female, Jew or Gentile, no matter what tribe, no matter what nation, all those that fear him praise his name. And in the same turn, what we'll see in judgment is it doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor, how small or, her, or how great, Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. Those that have rebelled against him need to fear judgment. So this voice from the throne declaring praise to the God, the day that we are learning about today is a day of praise for the Lord. It will be the day of redemption, the day where the hopes of God's people throughout the millennia will find their realization. We tend to sing at this time of year that song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her King. We sing, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight regarding our Messiah and his birth. And indeed, his birth. Uh, is, is a time of joy and a time of hope and a time that draws us. We think of, uh, of the, the prophecies of Simeon in the temple in, in Luke as he sees the young child. The coming of Messiah was a time of joy, but, but the fullness of that joy is not realized in Matthew 1 and 2 and in Luke 1 and 2. The fullness of that joy is realized in Revelation 19 and 20. The fullness of that joy is realized not at Jesus' first advent, but when Jesus comes again to finish the job. The day when all of the suffering of God's people will find its vindication. And that is the day that we're reading about today. The day that the Lord God omnipotent, that word omnipotent meaning all-powerful, omnipotent, right? Omnipotent. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. It's time for God to reign. God's self-imposed limitations for the sake of His grace are lifted and God is going to claim His sovereign right to rule. To that end, they continue to sing in verses 7 and 8, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Let us be glad and rejoice. What a wonderful exhortation. Let us be glad and rejoice. Are you glad this morning? Jesus claims the right in that day to rule over all things, to call the multitudes to be glad, to rejoice, to give honor to the Savior because He is finally claiming that which is rightfully His. And they say, be glad and rejoice specifically for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife is ready. She's arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. And the fine linen, clean and white, is, the Bible says, the righteousness of the saints. Here we find a concept of utmost importance and one which constitutes the essence of our hope. You and I live in a sin-sick world, do we not? All around us there is sin. There is the destruction of sin. We have prayed this morning for those uh, of, of our friends and of our loved ones who are, have been crippled in health, by, marred by the power of sin in this world. We've prayed for young ladies and we pray for young men at the jail who are crippled by sin. Sin has destroyed them, destroyed their lives. 
We live in bodies which, though redeemed from the power of sin and the condemnation of the law, yet are still touched by the infirmities of this life. Our sin nature yet exists in us and plagues us from day to day with the need for Christ and our spiritual shortcomings. Drives us to constantly seek to walk in the Spirit in order that we may deny the lust of the flesh. But it's important for us to know that in God's eyes, as God sees us, and we talked about this in Hebrews in Sunday school, we are, we are clean. We are pure. We are redeemed. Though it has not yet happened in the timeline, the church of the living God is spotless before Him. What we find here is that the fine linen, the clean and white linen of the bride is the righteousness of the saints. And this is not a foreign concept to the New Testament. This is, in fact, a quite common concept. First, as it relates to Jesus' relationship to the church as a marriage. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Do you see the links between the description of of the bride of Christ in Revelation chapter 19 and this idea in Ephesians 5 that relates the husband and wife relationship to Jesus Christ in the church. The birthright of the church of Christ is righteousness. Husbands are called to love their wives and in doing so, to fashion their wives into women of virtue, to love them into a disposition of virtue. And this is a reflection of how Christ deals with his church, how he interacts with his church. He gave his life for his church and he is continually in the process of sanctifying and cleansing her by the word. And the end goal of all of this sanctification is that one day he will present that church to himself as spotless, without wrinkle, without spot or any such thing, but it will be holy and without blemish. This is the work that Jesus Christ is doing in us. And to that end, and like with every element of salvation, the reality of purification is yet future, but the promises of purity exist today. We talk about um, that we are living in the, the practical realization of our salvation, though salvation is a future reality. We are living uh, um, um, today in its promises. God's promises are true. His word cannot be broken. We say positionally we are clean today. Positionally God already sees us as righteous. Positionally we are already saved. God looks down at us. We are saved. We are righteous. We are without spot or with blemish even though in this life we still struggle with sin. And then there's coming a day practically speaking where God will fully redeem us from the curse of the law. Where God will fully redeem us from the presence of sin. And so as we read in verses 7 and 8 about this bride, and it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, linen representing the righteousness of the saints, we see this link to Ephesians. It's also spoken of in Colossians, this reality that the church is this purifying element. Now, is the church the entirety of the bride of Christ? As we get into Revelation uh, chapter 20 and chapter 22, we're going to see some other elements of the Bride of Christ that might cause us to expand our thinking on that just a little bit. And when we get there, we'll get there. But the Bride of Christ has been prepared for this supper, the, the text tells us, the marriage of the Lamb. Within the Hebrew tradition, the primary function of a marriage would be the marriage supper. It's a supper of which we read of Jesus' first miracle, miracle of Cana of Galilee. He was there at a marriage supper. Now that being said, notice the text mentions that the wife is only ready for the marriage supper, as I mentioned. The kingdom parables of Matthew, which we'll consider in just a moment, lend us to the understanding that the fullness of what we call the marriage feast will not take place at Jesus' second return proper, but will take place during what we call the millennial reign of Christ. 
Furthermore, as I mentioned in Revelation 21, 22, the new Jerusalem might play a role in this as well. However, the stage is set. The bride is ready. She has been purified. And the only thing that seems to be left to do before the marriage supper can take place is the removal of all of those that are unworthy. And if my words sound somewhat familiar, thinking of a marriage feast, a preparation for the marriage feast, and then a removal or a rejection of the unworthy, that's because this is how Jesus spoke of the millennial kingdom in the Gospels. Jesus speaks in Matthew 22 and Matthew 25. He gives two parables about that, that speak of a marriage that I'd like us to reference this morning that give us a little more insight into what's happening here in Revelation 19. The first is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, where the Bible says this, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. And again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their way, one to his farm, and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, angry. And he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city." And then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden are not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment, and said unto him, Friend, how camest thou hither, not having a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus begins this parable with a common gospel teaching phrase. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. And this tells us that Jesus is going to relate this parable to some element of God's economy as it relates to his kingdom program. And within this parable, the Bible says the king sent his servants to bid those within his kingdom to come to the feast for his son's wedding. Now, as we think about that, we can already begin to perhaps draw some parallels. The first group of servants, the Bible says, were just completely ignored. The second group of servants that, that the king sent out were scorned, and some of them even killed. Naturally, within the scope of the parable, the servants of the king represent God's prophets being sent out to the nation of Israel, uh, those prophets calling the nation to be ready for the king. So the king in his anger destroyed those servants, destroyed those, those people, and then sent his servants to bid anyone and everyone who they can find to come to this wedding feast. So they found people of all stripes, morally good, morally bad, from anywhere, from everywhere, and the wedding was full of guests, the Bible says. But even among those, there was still a standard. So the king, as he's greeting all of his guests because those that he had first bidden were not worthy and so were destroyed, he sees a man that does not have a wedding garment on and he challenges that man and he says, why are you not prepared, right? As we think of Ephesians 5, as we think of Roman, uh, Revelation 19, the garment that they are wearing is, there, is the righteousness of the saints and the righteousness of the saints is found in Jesus Christ himself. And so what we are considering here is that there's someone in the feast that was not clothed in Christ's righteousness, and so he was cast out. For many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. That's the first parable that we see of Jesus that involves this concept of a feast. And notice that it does extend beyond just the concept of the church. The second is found in Matthew 25, and the Bible says this in verses 1 through 13. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. 
And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. And so we see a direct link here to the warning of the Son of Man coming as it relates to this kingdom parable. So once again, Jesus gives a parable. He says it's likened unto the kingdom where there are ten virgins, virgins awaiting the bridegroom and five of them are wise and five of them are foolish. And the difference between them was that the wise did that which was necessary, having thought ahead to be prepared for the day when the bridegroom would come. The foolish virgins, perhaps not unlike the man at the marriage feast who was not dressed in marriage garments, had some expectation that, that the bridegroom would come, had a mental understanding that the bridegroom would come, had an acknowledgement of the authority of the bridegroom, but did not do that, were unprepared, did not do that which was asked of them in order to be ready. So when the bridegroom came, those five were unprepared and they were left out of the marriage. Both of these parables root themselves in the concept of a marriage and a wedding feast intended to connect itself to the teachings of the New Testament in regard to Christ, in regard to the relationship that Christ has with His church, and finally to the glorious gathering and joyful union of all those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved in the kingdom. So we return to Revelation 19, where in verse 9, we read this. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So the blessing is upon all of those who are called to this marriage supper. All of those who have been brought in, who are within the gates for this marriage supper. And this is the rejoicing that we see at the beginning of the Lord's return. We see the rejoicing in heaven at all, that, that, that all of God's people have been gathered together unto this great marriage supper. This idea that we read here, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper, does hearken the mind back to the blessing found at the very end of the, the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Bible says right at the end of Daniel and from that time speaking of after the 70th week of Daniel from that time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away halfway through the 70th week and the abomination that make it desolate set up there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred five and thirty days so the blessing is conferred upon the person within the scope of the 70th week of Daniel who makes it through the 70th week who gets to the very end of that 70th week and then gets not just to the 1260th day which would be the end proper but then another 30 days uh, and then another 35 days on top of or 45 days excuse me on top of that to be 1335 days blessed is the man who gets to the 1,335th day because that is the day when God's kingdom begins. To this end, I don't think it's a stretch for us when we see the blessing of those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the blessing upon those who make it to the 1,335th day at the end of the 70th week that we might see the marriage supper of the Lamb and that 1,335th day as concurrent as the same prophetic event. Now, beginning in verse 10, we see a stark transition from the good supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, to the bad supper, the supper of the great God. And we mark this transition in verse 10, where it says this, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Seeing these things, the Bible says, John fell on his feet to worship the messenger. And the messenger immediately forbids him to do so. He states that he is a fellow servant and that if any worship is to be given, it should and always should be given to God alone. Now, this principle doesn't just help us here in Revelation, but it helps us throughout the whole Bible. It helps us when we see uh, people in the Old Testament fall down at the feet of some heavenly messenger. And there are times when falling down at the feet of the heavenly messenger, that heavenly messenger accepts worship. And there are other times where falling down at the feet of that heavenly messenger, that heavenly messenger does not accept worship. And what we know is this, when the heavenly messenger accepts worship, that's because he's the angel of the Lord, he's God himself. When he doesn't accept worship, it's clearly not God. They say, no, don't worship me, worship God. And so this gives us a little bit of a baseline by which we can understand where the angel of the Lord, where the second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate, finds his way in the Old Testament. The most important part of the, this verse, however, and perhaps even of this chapter, is the final phrase. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We'll come back to this at the end. But what the angel is saying is that the point of prophecy is to turn your eyes, your mind, and your actions toward Jesus. If prophecy does not turn you toward the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it's then, 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 well, it's not its fault, but you're not doing the right job as far as your interpretation of it. Prophecy draws our minds and our hearts to Christ. That is its intent. So the angel says, don't worship me. Worship the one who gave the message. Worship the one who is the king. Worship Jesus, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As I mentioned, we'll come back to this in a moment. That brings us, however, to the second supper. The Bible says this in verses 11 through 13. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he just doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Here we see the physical return of Jesus to the earth. John sees the heaven open and a white horse come forth. Upon this white horse, John sees one, he says, who is named Faithful and True. He says that in righteousness this one judges and makes war. This man is he who is just in judging. This man is he who is righteous in the war against his enemies. His eyes are described as a flame of fire, which we saw all the way back in Revelation chapter 1 when John sees the vision of the churches and he turns to see who's giving him this vision and he sees one who has the eyes like the flame of fire and the feet of fine brass and all of those elements. And we recognize these things to be a picture of Jesus Christ himself with those eyes of fire representing judgment. Because that is what fire represents in the Word of God. Fire represents judgment. It also represents purification. And so there's an element of purification, there's an element of judgment, and Jesus' eyes being a flaming fire represent the idea that he judges and that he purifies. John then describes his clothing, saying he has a vesture dipped in blood. We read in Revelation 14 of the blood pouring out on the day wherein the people are gleaned and thrown into the winepress of God's wrath, that the, that, that the blood came up to the horse's bridle as it flowed. And, and perhaps that's the blood that we see here. Perhaps it's, it's a, a representation of the blood of his redemption. We don't really know what the blood is or, or intended to represent in its fullness. And yet his vesture is dipped in blood. His eyes are a flame of fire. He has many crowns upon his head showing that he has the right to rule. And then we are given the most definitive statement about this man's identity, whereby we know that this is Jesus Christ. It says that his name is called the Word of God. This is a title given explicitly to Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, emphasized in the letters of John. 
And that's important because John is the one who wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ. So John wrote Revelation. John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John wrote the Gospel of John. And it is in these gos- the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John that we primarily see the emphasis of Jesus Christ as the Word of God. So we read in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We skip to verse 14, and it puts the piece together. And the Word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the one who became flesh. We sang about it this morning, even in O Come All Ye Faithful. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Right? We also see it in 1 John chapter 5, where the Bible says in verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Recognizing that Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is connected in 1 John 5, 7 to the Word. So the Word of God is the one that we see here. This is Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and 15. And the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it, he should smite the nations, and he shall rule with a rod of iron, who rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now following Jesus were the armies of heaven. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 14 tells us that when the Lord returns, he will bring the dead in Christ with him. We also see here that the, this army that comes with him is clothed in fine linen white and clean. We immediately connect that to what we already read earlier in the chapter about the church of Jesus Christ being those that are white and clean, the righteousness of the saints. And so we have reasons to assume that, that those that, that are in heaven will come with him to fight this battle for these reasons. The Bible says that out of Jesus' mouth goes a sharp sword. Again, we find that in uh, correlation to the description of the man in Revelation chapter 1, out of whose mouth also went a sharp sword. This indicates that the weapon of Jesus' warfare will not so much be a physical weapon, but his words, the same words, of course, which framed the world, the same words which uphold the world with the greatness of his power, are the words by which he will smite the nations. And so the Bible says Jesus will smite the nations, creating a kingdom whereby he will rule with a rod of iron. But notice that last phrase there. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And this statement recalls to our mind the description in Revelation 14. Remember when we were in Revelation 14, we said that there may be a little bit of a prophetic idea there. That, that, that John is looking forward there to, when, to the end of the 70th week when um, God reaps the harvest and throws them all into the winepress of his wrath. And here we see a physical description of Jesus pressing in that wine press, right? Uh, physically pr- performing that act of, of, of pressing the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of God. To that end, that's why we link Revelation 14 as sort of a foreshadowing of what would happen here in Revelation 19 at the end of the 70th week. John continues to describe this day in verses 16 through 18. He says this, And he hath on his vesture, this would be the man on the white horse, Jesus, and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the, the, an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond both small and great. So upon the same vesture that was dipped in blood, there's a name written. It's also a name written on his thigh, the Bible says. King of kings and Lord of lords. This chapter confirms what so much of the Bible teaches, that names are important, that the names of God are not so much what he is called as much as his identity And in this case, his identity reflects that he is not just faithful and true. He is not just the word of God, but that he is the king. He is the Lord, that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.
And then John sees an angel, which he says is standing in the sun. This probably does not mean that the angel is standing on the sun, but rather in the same way that you might be uh, looking at a beautiful day and maybe you're watching a bird fly and then that bird flies into the sun, right? That doesn't mean that he like actually just gets all the way to the sun and then combusts, right? It means that he is flying where your vision can no longer see him because your vision is obscured by the sun. And that's likely what's happening here, is the angel that's standing in the sun means that he is standing between the nations of the earth and the sun itself. And he cries to all the birds of the earth that they would assemble themselves to the supper of the great God. A supper defined by doom and destruction and death and judgment. Verse 18 tells us that there will be no rank that will distinguish who will be eaten on that day. The idea of being picked clean by birds is a, is a, a very undignified idea. It's an idea whereby throughout history when people uh, were waiting for their relatives to be buried, they would do something to protect the relatives so that the beasts of the field and the birds of the air did not come and desecrate the body by picking it clean, right? And here we have this announcement by the angel, come, you're going to be picking clean a bunch of bodies. And he calls it the supper of the great God. And there is no discrimination between bond or free. It's not like the rich are going to get away from uh, get, get away, and, and the poor are only are going to be the ones that have to go through this. It's not like the, the free men are going to get away with it, but the bondmen are going to have to go through this. Bond and free, the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, it's all there. Verses 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse. So now we see the armies of the earth. Remember those armies that had been gathered to Megiddo, that had been gathered to the valley of Jezreel and the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now they have gathered to make war against Jesus and against his army. Verse 20. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. It's here in these final verses of the chapter that we learn that this event is in fact the battle which we call Armageddon. John sees the armies have been gathered together, we mentioned already, spoken of in Revelation 14, spoken of in Revelation 16, to war against Jesus and his army. They will fight for the, the final act of dominance of mankind over this world. And the Bible says that within this battle, of course, the, Jesus is, is treading out the winepress of God's wrath. Uh, we connect that with Revelation 14, and it's going to be a, a tremendous slaughter. Of course, the, 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 the birds are there being filled with flesh, a tremendous slaughter. But there are two that don't die on this day, the Bible tells us. And that is the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. It seems as though they don't die. Rather, the Bible says that the beast was taken and the false prophet, and they were cast alive into the lake of fire. There are two humans in the biblical record who have not died and were translated into heaven. One was Enoch, the other was Elijah. Both of these men, having pleased the Lord for one reason or another, we talked about whether they may be the two witnesses and such, were translated out of this world, did not see death, and were directly translated to heaven. This is a similar idea, only on the opposite end of the spectrum. These two men, it seems, are translated directly without having seen death into the lake of fire. And they are the first two to populate the lake of fire. Before Satan, before the demonic hordes, before anyone else, these two will spend 1,000 years alone in the lake of fire before it's populated by anyone else. And they are cast directly into the lake of fire. The rest of the inhabitants of the earth who are destroyed, who are slain, the birds will fill with their flesh and they will wait in that place that we call hell 
until the judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. And so it is that we read of Jesus Christ's second coming. We read of His coming proper. We read of Him coming to make war. We read of His saints coming with Him. We read of the stand of the armies against Jesus Christ. We read of Him pressing out uh, the, the, the armies in the wine press of His wrath, connecting to Revelation 14 and the great destruction of that day. We read of the judgment of the beast and the false prophet being cast directly into the lake of fire. We'll talk more about the lake of fire and hell uh, after, the after we study the millennial kingdom. And it is, in fact, kind of here that we're going to leave things as it, relates to the millennial, uh, as it relates to Revelation 19. Next week, I'm going to preach on Revelation 19 again. We're going to connect all of this that we've read today to Old Testament prophecy. The week after that, we're going to have kind of a hybrid message that gears us up for Revelation 20 in the millennial kingdom while simultaneously thinking about Jesus Christ's birth. The next week will be Christmas, then the new year, and then we'll dig back into Revelation in the new year. But for today, I have three points of application I want to send you with as we conclude. We, we study the scriptures, right? We study to show ourselves approved. We exposit the scriptures and make sure we understand it properly. Then after this, we want to make sure that we take the scriptures and we apply it to our lives in a meaningful way. So I have three points to draw out of this this morning. Number one, to the unbeliever. Be terrified, the day of judgment is at hand. This day we read about today had these two very different characteristics. The first being joy, the second being judgment. I'm going to approach them in, in a different order. But this day, this day of judgment, the strength of the world will be crushed. All attempts to fight back will be futile. Everything that this world has lived for, everything that this world stands for, everything that this world has loved will be undone in a moment. Everything that this world has built over the centuries and millennia, all of the attempts and the achievements of mankind to pull himself up by his brute straps and, and to become his own God will be torn down in an instant. The whole world will finally realize what they have done in choosing to reject salvation offered so freely to all men. And this is intended to be a part of the compulsion that draws the unbeliever to recognize that today is the day to feel terror. Today is the day to flee unto the Lord for mercy. That to whatever degree the unbeliever, recognizing the terror of the Lord, recognizing the terror of that day, seeing that he does not want to be a part of that terror, flees to the Lord for mercy, the Lord will unfailingly grant it to him. And the emphasis of all Scripture as it relates to judgment is that it will be swift and sudden, but to this end, that the Lord would call upon all of those who see themselves in the path of judgment to repent today, to get right today, to turn today, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be saved, that they may be saved from the judgment that is to come. Believer, unbeliever, be terrified. The day of judgment is at hand. Believer, be steadfast. Be faithful. Be glad. The day of victory is at hand. The first half of this chapter is a celebration of victory. God's people are seen standing before the Lord in righteousness and in purity. The battle is over. The battle against sin the battle to mortify the flesh, the battle to act in a manner that is worthy of the name by which we are called. One day that battle will be over and we read of that day today. And not only do we know that the battle will be over, but we know just as surely as we struggle against sin today that when the battle is over, it will be because we've won it, not lost it. When I go out for a jog, the closer I get to the finish line, the more important that finish line becomes to me. When I first start my jog, I might be thinking about what I had to do that day. I might be thinking about uh, how the kids have been acting. I might be thinking about someone in the church and praying for them. But you know, as that jog continues, all of those other things start to get a little more dim in my mind. 
And I begin to focus on other things. I begin to focus on breathing. You know, got to keep that, that breathing proper or else you'll get cramps. Got to focus on my stride, making sure that I have a good pace, a good stride. I don't try to overstride. I, I, I don't lose my pace. But the most important thing and the thing that I focus on the most is that finish line. How close am I to that finish line? How, 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 how much more uphill do I have before I hit the downhill? That gets to the finish line. The finish line becomes my motivation itself. Where does the strength come from to see the race through to its end? Believer, maybe you're tired. Maybe you're discouraged. You're struggling with sin. And maybe the battle isn't going very well right now. Remember there's coming a day when you'll cross the finish line. And so stay on pace. Keep forging ahead. Stay on the target. Where does the strength come from? Not only to limp through this life, but to stand up in the day of battle and to call others out of darkness into light. It comes from an overwhelming confidence that the battle is the Lord's, that sin has no power over us, that the flesh has been destroyed, that the head of Satan has been crushed. And it is within this spirit that Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. You see, you see the motivation? Live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope. We read about our blessed hope today. That is our blessed hope. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We remain zealous for good works. We live in this fashion of purity. We live in this passion of sobriety. We live in this passage of focus, focusing not on today, but focusing upon that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that how you see his coming? Do you Look forward to His coming. Do you hope for His coming? Is it the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? If it's not, there's something wrong. Why aren't you excited about it? Why don't you want it to come? Now, for our young people, you know, there's that carnal element of I want to live more life. You'll get over that. But for the rest of us, why wouldn't you be excited about the Lord's coming? Is it because you're living in sin? Or is it because you're outside of grace? See, because the believer is looking for that blessed hope. The, the believer lives in that blessed hope. That is, that's the place where we live. That's where our mind stays. That's what gives us the hope. In the same way that my mind stays on the finish line to keep my legs turning when I'm running, your mind stays on the finish line to keep your spiritual legs turning through this life. There's coming a day when you'll cross that finish line. And until that day, that finish line is your blessed hope. May I exhort you to keep it that way. And may I exhort you to one more thing within the second point. Be steadfast, be faithful. Third, be glad. The Christian life may in many ways be defined by a struggle against the darkness of this world and against our sin nature. We've read in Jeremiah and we'll continue to read in Jeremiah about the discouragement that Jeremiah felt in ministry because of those who had not listened and because of how they had treated him. But let me remind you that the Christian life is intended to be a life of gladness. You are redeemed. You're saved. You are numbered among those that have overcome the world. To this end, in verse 7 of Revelation 19, the multitudes call unto one another, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us be glad. The victory is at hand. The war is already won. So be glad. It's wonderful to be a Christian. It's not always easy. It's not always happy. But it's wonderful to be a Christian. Redeemed, forgiven, sanctified, provided for, blessed beyond measure. This is our birthright. Let us be glad. 
Third and final point. First, unbeliever, be terrified. The day of judgment is at hand. Second, believer, be steadfast, be faithful, be glad. The day of victory is at hand. Third, remember, Jesus Christ is the point of prophecy. And I recall to your minds this essential point. We study none of this prophecy specifically to know the future. We study this prophecy to know Jesus Christ. We study this prophecy to become better today. The ins and the outs, the details, the little things, all of those things, which we are spending time on. We are, we are spending time on them. But don't get distracted from what we're doing here. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy serves to testify of who Jesus is, of his great and marvelous works, of his inevitable victory, also that we might maintain, might maintain a proper perspective that keeps us in line today. When we read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, the point is that we look unto the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ so that today we'll live in sobriety, today we'll live in purity, today we'll live in godliness. We don't study the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we can look at people who don't agree with us and say, well, you're just wrong on that. Or you're just wrong on when Jesus is coming. You're just wrong on your your thoughts on the rapture. We don't study the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we can have some sort of political economic insight. We study the revelation of Jesus Christ to compel us to obey him to compel us to know Him, to remind us that He is righteous, that He is coming to judge in righteousness and injustice, that He is coming to make war and that we are to be on His side and we are to be faithful today, serving today, living today, loving today, calling others out of darkness today because tomorrow may be too late. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. We are in this wonderful season between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But it can also become somewhat of a selfish season if we're not careful. Materialism has absolutely consumed the season in the world around us. The world flutters around us with the priorities of life and the priorities of things and the priorities of people and the priorities of politics and all of the other things that life has to offer. But as we study prophecy, it's intended to anchor us in Christ. Anchor us in a perspective that says, no matter what all the world is clamoring about, I know where I am. I know where I stand. I know where I'm going. I know what's coming. So let's get busy today. And it allows us to filter out all of this stuff that would seek to, to, to consume us in fear or consume us in panic or consume us in distraction. And we say, no, don't get distracted because there's a day coming when Jesus, will, where all this is just going to burn up anyway. We got new chairs this week. You're sitting in them. We got more chairs in here. Thank the Lord for that. They're all going to burn up one day though. They're great. They're great to have, but they're all going to burn. They don't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. You get new stuff around the holidays, right? Children, the one thing that you say, mom and dad, if I can have that, I'll never ask for anything again. And then you're asking for new stuff by February. It's all going to burn. It comes and it goes. But do you know what won't ever go? You know who's coming but will never go? Jesus Christ. Do you know what will never pass away? The things we do for him in this life. Do you know who will bring with us all those who, as we born precious seed with weeping, bring our sheaves with us? Those who we've led to Christ, those who we've discipled in Him. Do you know who we'll see when He comes? Our loved ones who have gone before us. Prophecies intended to root us in that reality, to keep us focused, to keep us busy. Keep us grounded. How are you doing in this season? We're just starting, right? Today's December 2nd. It's just just the beginning of the season. Have you already lost focus? Have you already gotten caught up in in, in, in the clutter and the mess to the extent that you've lost focus on what really matters? Keep yourself grounded. Prophecy's a good way to do that as long as you handle prophecy properly. As you listen to people talk about prophecy, as you read books on prophecy, if they're not keeping you grounded... The information's all well and good. But the point of prophecy 
The testimony of prophecy. Excuse me, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Today we read of two very different dinners, didn't we? Marriage supper of the Lamb, time of rejoicing and victory. As the bride of Christ has been prepared a spotless lamb, the righteousness of the saints is that white linen. And then the supper of the great God, called unto by all the fowl of the air, that they may feast on the flesh of kings and of captains. Which supper are you going to be a part of? Are you keeping the main thing the main thing? For you is the testimony of Jesus Christ, the spirit of prophecy. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.